as you may have guessed by the title of this episode, we are talking about endings of stories. If you prefer not to be spoiled, this may be an episode you might have to skip. Otherwise, feel free to listen and fast forward at your discretion. Hope you enjoy. I hate personally, I hate when there's a sad ending and they don't give me enough recovery time to stop crying. So I'm like, if there's something sad, like let's pick any Marvel movie. There's always like a downturn, right? They always want to make you cry at some yeah. point. And usually it's not the very ending. So I'm, I'm thankful because I'll, I'll cry and then I'll be like, all right, I've got some time to dry out a little bit <laughs> until the lights come up. Yeah, you need, you need a minute to pick yourself back up before you walk out of the theater. Welcome to Speculative Sandbox, your audio playground for creative storytellers. My name is Vicki Lawn, and each episode, I and a guest will unpack a fiction trope with an eye for character development and narrative structures. Make sure to look for Speculative Sandbox on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter, where you can join the conversation. Leave comments or questions, or let us know what other tropes we should cover. When the real world just doesn't cut it, let's get lost in a fictional one. Have you ever watched a movie all the way to the end to discover every single character dies? Or the heroes lose the mission? Or whatever outcome you wanted to happen just didn't happen? Whether the story's ending was meant to prove a point or just make you sad, unhappy endings certainly send us off feeling some sort of way. Elizabeth Brown joins me in a discussion about unhappy endings. We'll be focusing on a wide range of genres for this one, including some non-speculative fiction stories, because plot structure will be our main focus. We'll talk about good and bad examples, including some famous happy endings that maybe should have been unhappy ones. All right, so Liz, thank you so much for joining me on Speculative Sandbox. Uh, Tell me about yourself and the stories that you like to read. Uh, So I think uh, one of the first things to get out of the way is I'm utterly unqualified to to be on this podcast. (laughs) Um, I'm not a writer. I don't have a liberal arts degree. um, And I don't work in anything remotely related to to the literary field. Um, I'm a nurse, which means I'm the worst person in the world to watch any movie or TV show that involves CPR because I will automatically grade their their CPR (laughs) skills. Um, I am married to a writer, though, um, and he was actually the first podcast guest. And by the time this episode comes out, he will have had a second episode, I think. Um, But So you have to live with the writer so you know the lifestyle. (laughs) (laughs) I I do, I do. Um, And... I, I love to read. Um, I thought about being a humanities major before I realized that uh, I did not have the endurance for writing all those essays. Um, but I read a bunch, um, watch a lot of movies, um, and being married to a writer means we have a lot of nitpicky discussions about about plot points and character arcs and everything like that and I get to do a lot of beta reading um so I'm sort of sort of uh tangentially on the on the fringes of of that group um 
as far as it's so hard to say, you know, stories you enjoy reading, like what did I say? I like fiction that kind of <laughs> is a little bit too broad. Um, I, I love kind of things that are straddle the fantasy sci-fi story um, kind of line. Um, I love anything that has like horror elements to it, even if it's not strictly horror. Um, my favorite writers, I, I love Garth Nix. Um, I grew up reading the, um, the Old Kingdom series with the Sabriel, Lyriel, Horson books. And then I got my husband on them uh, a couple of years ago. I love Stephen King. We, mm. we have a whole shelf in our bookcase that is it's all just Stephen King books. <laughs> and then more recently, um, I've been loving Andy Weir's books um, for more of like the modern hard science fiction kind of stuff. Did and, you read his Project Hail Mary yet? Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, so actually, my husband and I, since we've been together, um, we go on vacation for a week in the summer. And we do this book club thing where every year we take turns and one of us gets to pick a book. We buy two copies. We start it the first day of vacation. And we kind of read it together and discuss and everything. And one year we did The Martian. and then. Last summer, we did Project Hail Mary, and we were going on vacation with my dad. My dad is a huge, huge nerd. Uh, he's an engineer. He loved The Martian. And so we actually got him a third copy, and he did it with us. Um, and it was it was like a wild time. <laughs> Discussing, um, like, the pseudoscience. Yeah. I love, yeah. uh, me and my coworker also read Project Hail Mary, and we were like, I think we know enough to get in trouble. We're not sure. <laughs> Yes. Oh yeah. You, you finish reading the Martian and you're like, oh, I could, I could survive in space. Yeah. I could, grow my, I, could grow my, I could propagate my own potatoes. Um, yep. I'm a physicist. Um, yeah, I love, um, I love, I love his writing. Um, it's such a great mix of, um, he, he gives you so much information, but it's somehow not overwhelming. Mm -hmm. um, it's fascinating and then the end of last year and then uh, just this spring I read Circe and Song of Achilles by Madeline mm -hmm. Miller yeah and um, it's it's kind of hard like can you call somebody one of your favorite authors when you've only read two books um but I would I would not need a book pitch I it, somebody would be like oh Madeline came out with a new book and I'd be like okay sign me up I'm buying it mm -hmm. uh, no questions asked what was it about um, those books that really got gripped you? Oh man. I mean, I think Madeline Miller, easy. Like I, I'm a huge mythology buff. Um, I took in middle, I, I dropped it when I went to high school, but I took Latin in uh, elementary, uh, elementary school. My God, can you imagine? Um, middle school. I did Latin because I loved mythology so much. And so kind of getting that, modern retelling of a classic story kind of through a different lens I think is always um kind of always appealing I think yeah. there's something like we like repetition we like stories where we know where it's going but seeing it from a different angle um is, is kind of interesting mm -hmm. um and I think oh I mean like Stephen King there's 
there's too much to say about <laughs> about Stephen King. Like his writing style is great, and then his stories are just so interesting. Like a lot of times, it it's horror, but not horror. Um, I'm a huge Guillermo del Toro fan um, mm -hmm. from the film side of things, and I don't know. Have you seen um, Crimson Peak? I haven't. Oh, uh, yes, I did with um, Thomas Tom Hiddleston. Yes, Hiddleston. Yes. yes. So there's that. You know the the female main character. She's writing this book, and everybody's calling it a ghost story. And she's like, "No, it's not a ghost story. It's a love story with ghosts in it." And I've always felt that way about Stephen King's books. Like they're not they're not horror books. They're usually character dramas but they have a lot of horror in them. Yeah. And I've always kind of loved that too. And then Garth Nix is just, I think Garth Nix kind of has a lot of what people kind of talked about, um, like Game of Thrones a little bit, where it's these big fantasy stories, but they're different. They're not just like a classic fantasy story. Um, I think a lot of people, got into get into Brandon Sanderson now and I feel like I got into Garth Nix as a child and then got into Brandon Sanderson as an adult um, but I think there's a lot of similarities between between their world building and their magic systems and that kind of thing how they approach the the structure of their stories so when your author husband asks you to beta read his manuscripts <laughs> how much should he brace himself <laughs> Um, I think one of his favorite edits on his, um, first, first story that he had me read was, um, I, I went through and highlighted all of the parentheses that he put in. And I said, get rid of these, <laughs> turn them into commas. <laughs> I think he got rid of maybe like one instance of them. Um, he's, he's learned a little bit, um, what kind of stories I like to read. And so he kind of knows like, oh, this is a story you'll like to read or mm, this is a story that I'm maybe gonna not, not put on your desk um, mm. because it's not quite up your alley. But I think, uh, I, it's, I think being an editor is fascinating. Like I'm not an editor, but I, it must be so hard to try to strike that balance of cleaning up buffing up somebody's work without altering their voice. Mm -hmm. Like my, the way I like to read and the way I would write is very different than how my husband writes. And so when I'm beta reading, editing, giving it a comb over, trying not to change the way he writes, but just polish it, it's, it's a really hard line. Yeah, you're right. That's when, uh, <laughs> The editors I've worked with, I've always been, I've learned so much too, as a, as a writer, I worked with one editor to polish a manuscript. And then I worked with, um, a story producer slash editor on a project. And I noticed that the thing that they both do is like, they'll, they'll grammatically tell me what I need to fix. Right. Or spell check. Right. But when it comes to developmental edits, it's very much a, this is the end goal, or this is my observation, figure out how to get to this outcome in your way. And I always right. found that to be such a, a nice, a great approach because it caters to the individual styles of the writers. 
Right, right. They're not a uh, less less script doctoring and more, you know, here's here's a problem I've noticed. You figure out how to solve it in mm-hmm. the way that you know works for your story. Definitely. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so we are here today on a, to discuss a topic that I actually heard that you wanted to talk about, and I was really <laughs> excited to hear about it, which is unhappy endings. So tell me a little bit of what got you interested in that topic. Oh man, uh, <laughs> every time we go see a movie or we finish a book, uh, you know, I'll be, we'll be sitting in the movie theater and I'll be smiling and nodding and very much enjoying myself. And then the last 15 minutes of the movie, I'll <laughs> notice my husband start looking over and looking at my face and being, are we still on board? Are you still liking how this is pulling together? Are we okay? And then the movie will end and I'll just look at him and he'll be like, oh, yeah, you didn't like that ending, did you? <laughs> um, I am notoriously super picky about my endings. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, I, I hate personally, I hate when there's a sad ending and they don't give me enough recovery time to stop crying. So I'm like, if there's something like, let's pick any Marvel movie. There's always like a downturn, right? They always want to make you cry at some point. And usually it's not the very ending. So I'm, I'm thankful Mm -hmm. because I'll, I'll cry. And then I'll be like, all right, I've got some time to dry out a little bit (laughs) until the lights come up. Yeah. You need, you need a minute to pick yourself back up before you walk out of the theater for sure. Yeah. So then let's, for uh, sorry, I'll start that one over. So when we talk about happy ever afters it's that ending that we come to expect especially as we're growing up from childhood into adulthood and then we start getting exposed to different kinds of endings sometimes they're trying to make a point a life lesson or they're just trying to make you sad and embarrassed as you leave the theater with tears (laughs) coming down your face so what circumstances does a story call for an unhappy ending when when is it a good job Uh, my my knee-jerk reaction is to say always um (laughs) I love, I love a, uh, in air quotes, bad ending, not like a poorly executed ending, but where you're like, Ooh, that, that didn't go well. Um, I think, I mean, I think it depends a lot on, on what kind of story you're telling, obviously, like no one, no one's going to be happy if their rom-com has an unhappy ending. That's, that's not what you showed up for. Mm and I mean, that is the think, rule, right? For happily for romantic right. genres, that happy ever after is part of the genre. And if you're yes. not going to have a happy ending, then it's a different genre. Yeah, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I think that's fair. Unless you know, sometimes if you're telling like a a period drama romance, mm-hmm. you can sometimes get away with a, a little bit more of a a mixed bag ending. Uh, but definitely, yeah, that's that's kind of genre baked into the genre. Um, but as I mentioned Brandon Sanderson earlier, um, my husband, uh, watched a bunch of his lectures that he had recorded and put up on YouTube. And he has this great thing. It's not specifically about endings. It's about sort of all the different climaxes, big plot points throughout a novel or a story. And he has this great thing where he calls it a yes, but or a no and. Mm. And so the yes, but is like your hero is successful, but there's something goes wrong or there's some sort of fallout. 
in order to maintain tension and interest. And then it's more interesting when they have a complete triumph later. And then there's a no and, which is we failed. And there's like a pretty negative uh, repercussion for that failure. And I feel like the happily ever after good endings is like a yes and. Mm, you know, okay. We achieved our goal and everything's great now. And it's kind of mm-hmm. just like, that's not really how life works. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's like the it's happily ever like, after is too soon in the ending when it comes to real yeah. life. Yeah. I mean, you know, you think about, um, you know, even like the fairy tales growing up, you know, they get married, they ride off into the sunset and it's like happily ever after. It's like, okay, but like after they've been married for five years, is it still happily ever after? Do they argue about who's doing the dishes? Um, Mm -hmm. This story doesn't end. Story doesn't end here. Story keeps going. Um, And, and life is usually, even when things are going well, there's usually something that's not going well at the same time. Um, and, and I think it's just a little bit more, it's more interesting. There's just more depth and believability, I guess, to, mm-hmm. to a story when, when things end on that sort of negative note or, or a mixed note. It definitely seems like the unhappy ending is effective in teaching someone the impacts. I, the most recent one, and I know this one was very controversial when it came out, um, Don't Look Up on Netflix. Yeah. Uh, it's, yes. it's the story of two scientists that discover an asteroid's coming for us and they go through the dog and pony show of the media and trying to get the news out mm-hmm. to you know various uh, feedback. And it ends up in a lot of uh, political confusion. And the end result is they never actually succeed in stopping the asteroid, what, uh, whatever uh, options I did have, and they all right. just perish. And that was the end goal was that if, if we don't act, um, this will be our, a similar result for us. Yeah. And I think that's a great example too, because the, the same person that did don't look up, did the big short. And, um, when I was, you know, my husband was helping me prep and we got into this whole conversation about, um, do, do books and movies that are based on true events, do they get credit for having an unhappy ending? Because like, well, that's not a narrative choice, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's how it happened. But the big short ends with these black and white title cards. It's just text. And it's basically like, yeah, we uncovered this uh, big banking housing crisis problem and we called attention to it and nothing changed. Mm. nobody faced repercussions they're still doing the same thing the the cycle continues and so they definitely um and it's kind of funny because those don't look up and big short also has a lot of comedy but don't look up is a funny movie and it's Mm -hmm. fun to watch Mm -hmm. but it's kind of a downer too and so it's it's interesting they they've really nailed the blend of figuring out how to have comedy interspersed with um pretty pretty serious dire negative outcomes um which I think that's really tricky do you have any other examples of good unhappy endings 
Oh man. And it's, so this is interesting. I was, I was looking for examples and I think it seems like in, in TV and film, it's way easier to come up with outright unhappy endings. Whereas I feel like in, in novels, they tend to go more with that bittersweet ending. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe that's because <laughs> it's more of a time investment reading a novel than watching a movie usually. And so, you know, you, you might get pretty frustrated if you uh, spent, you know, 20 hours reading something and you get a catastrophic downer of an ending, but watching yeah. two hours of something is okay. But Probably the most, like, so in a good example of a bitter, so how, first of all, how would you define bittersweet as opposed to unhappy? Yeah. So I think for me, the, the easiest way to sum up unhappy ending versus bittersweet is like the, well, I think a good example is like the difference between infinity war and end game. Kind of bring up the, bringing up Marvel, you know, infinity game. No one walked out of that movie with a smile on their face. Like you just, mm-hmm you just want to go home and crawl under your blankets and and cry and end game you're sad you were probably crying five minutes ago but you kind of feel okay mm-hmm. about where the movie left things um and I think- so it's bittersweet bittersweet it's bitter because you're seeing some of the the end of some of these stories and sweet because you're satisfied that they won the day at least Exactly. I think bittersweet is like the, we won, but at what cost? Mm. Whereas an unhappy ending is we paid the same cost, but we didn't win. Gotcha. You know, I think pro, like the, your protagonist or your hero dying is a kind of part of a benchmark of whether or not it's an unhappy ending or not. But sometimes the hero dies in order to bring about the victory condition, if that makes sense. Gotcha. Um, An example I have, I think this is bittersweet, maybe you can tell me, um, is the book Perfect Days by Rafael Montes. It came out a couple of years ago. I got it as part of a book subscription service. Um, And it was, this guy writes horror and his mom said, why can't you just write a good romance? Like, why are you so dark? <laughs> so he was like, <laughs> okay. Like <laughs> he writes Perfect Days, which is, to, it's told from the perspective of a psychopath who falls in love with a girl. And it's his way, like, if you think of your typical, like you fall in love with someone, you seduce them, you spend time together, you get married children, right? It is the same exact mm-hmm. timeline, except he is holding her against her will. And it's like, it's a thriller. So then you're reading it and you're like, what really trying to get her, like hoping that she can escape and terrible. Like I'm reading this. I'm like, what did I subscribe to? It was just like one of those monthly (laughs) things where they gave me the book and it was on the top list for a while. And at the end, you think she finally escaped until they get into a car wreck and she has amnesia. So then he goes to the hospital and pretends that they've been together this whole time. They end up getting married and have children. She has no idea everything they went through, except that every now and then she has nightmares and she clearly demonstrates PTSD, Um, but they're together and in this warped romance. Oh my gosh. It's just, I finished the book and I was like, I wanted to throw the book across. It was like one of those books where I was like, I have to get rid of this book. (laughs) 
<laughs> yes. yes. Well, and I think that that brings up a really good point. So I think there's a big difference between endings which end poorly for the protagonist, but we kind of enjoy it mm-hmm. versus endings like that where it ends badly and we're unhappy about it, right? Like some, <laughs> yeah. sometimes there's almost this um, kind of like bizarre, sick, it, it's fun to watch our heroes fail because there's, it, there's, no, there's no stakes to it. Um, you know, it's, it's not real people actually um, going through hardship and, and having a hard time um and sometimes it's kind of kind of interesting to to watch that happen but then sometimes the end, there's an ending and you're like I'm I'm not okay with that mm-hmm. like that's that's unacceptable um yeah for sure I think for me um we we watched a movie uh, last fall called um Promise, Promising Young Woman I think is what it's called um and it's it's the story of um, this this young woman, kind of. It's kind of like a revenge revenge quest um, with a a big, you know, feminist feminist bent to it. Um, her her best friend went through something, and and she's kind of getting back at all the men that were involved, and she achieves her goal she the uh the ringleader of of what happened he he gets his comeuppance and he ends up getting arrested at the end of the movie but she dies (laughs) yeah and we watched it and I was I was so upset I was so mad like this is not okay this whole movie was about like getting getting your vengeance for this you know misogynistic trauma thing and it ends with her getting killed by the same man that caused the original trauma Mm. and you're like that's not that's not fair that's not okay was that a good example of a bad ending then or was that a bad ending or an unhappy ending or both (laughs) Well, so it's kind of tricky, like technically by my metrics, it would count as more of a bittersweet ending because she did sort of accomplish her goal. Mm, you know, okay. he, all the men wind up being punished. Um, he goes to prison. Everybody knows what happened. Um, and her death is sort of what brings that about. So it was almost like the noble sacrifice kind of thing. I see. Okay. Um, and when I look, when I, when I stopped and looked back on it a couple weeks later, objectively, like yeah, I can see how this ending works narratively, but I still don't like it. <laughs> I'm still not happy with it. No, not well, happy that was about a, it. It was an example of what was that structure where he the protagonist accomplished their goal but died Mm -hmm. yeah yep you're just like okay that's all right and you don't even get to um you don't get to see your victory Mm, okay that uh, other examples of that that I came up with were the whole they they succeeded but 
you have gladiator who um maximus dies at the end after Mm -hmm. avenging a bunch of stuff but uh, no he he sorry i should rephrase that he avenges a lot of things and succeeds in the end but dies but i guess that's bittersweet because he kind of had a death wish ever since his his child and and wife died and so then he gets to see them in the end right right um it's I tried so hard to come up with examples that weren't horror (laughs) um and I because I think that's sort of going back to your early question about what what stories deserve to have an, an unhappy ending or a bad ending and I think horror flat out um I remember one of the first horror the first horror movie that I saw as like a teenager slash adult that really scared the pants off me um it's called quarantine which has a whole new (laughs) whole new tone to that word now um but it's an American remake of a Spanish horror movie but it's basically kind of like a Blair Witch found footage situation in a apartment building and there's some virus outbreak that kind of is maybe like rabies and it's not quite zombie but kind of zombie-esque and everybody dies <laughs> the last did they stop the quarantine i haven't seen this movie so I don't you know. don't know you don't know <gasps> so oh. it yeah, so like there, it's this film crew, and I don't remember why they're in this building, but all this weird stuff starts happening, and then you know the city comes in and puts the building into quarantine and isn't letting anybody out, and they're not telling them what's going on, and it sort of just gets uh, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and then the last scene of the movie it you know the the camera is in night vision because she's in this weird basement creepy creepy room and drops the camera and so the camera's on the ground she's on the ground crawling towards the camera and then she gets pulled back out of frame and it just ends oh <laughs> yeah and i just remember absolutely flipping my lid when the credits started rolling I had never seen a horror movie with no survivors before and it totally it totally changes things Mm -hmm. right because if you kind of go into uh, like the conjuring movies love them love them to death you know Ed and Lorraine Warren aren't dying because they're real people and they they were alive until pretty recently. And so sometimes it's kind of like it the the stakes are a little bit lower because you know they're not in any real danger. And I think that was the big thing even though this wasn't an ending. In Game of Thrones, when they kill Ned Stark, all of a sudden the bar gets raised because you know now ooh, <laughs> if they're gonna kill him they could kill anybody yeah and all of a sudden all of these situations where there's even a threat of danger to the characters 
you're actually afraid for the characters all the time because they've they've set that standard that death is actually an option on the table. So I think um, I think movies like that um, kind of stick with you a little bit more um, because we don't we don't expect that. Yeah, I, I like that too because it subverts a lot of tropes that you you know you're watching mm-hmm. and you're expecting you know, certain things. And that's what I love about watching movies and stories throughout the, the ages. You, you, you recognize yes. tropes that are persistent and then you see every now and then things get flipped on its head a little bit. And especially with pop culture, because mm-hmm. I know that a, a lot of things aren't new, but pop culture specifically, the era of grittiness, for example, uh, that started, yes. I think, 15 years ago. And then also the anti-hero uh, with Mad Men mm-hmm. and Breaking Bad um, the Sopranos, you know, all that era. I love that. So Game of Thrones, like brought in the era of your loved one will probably could, could die. And now you're feeling just as freaked out as if you were in the, that world yourself. Right. Right. Kind of gets rid of this idea of plot armor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the, the tropes thing, one of my favorite movies is, um, seven, by um directed by David Fincher and you know it's a a procedural cop serial killer drama movie and it's Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman and they're trying to catch this serial killer guy and they do they catch him and in most movies that's where the movie would end but the movie doesn't end there it keeps going past that point and we get the classic Brad Pitt, what's in the box scene. And you find out that the villain has, you know, killed the wife of one of our main characters. He winds up then killing the villain and the movie ends with him getting arrested. And Morgan Freeman, who is supposed to be retiring and he's going to train this younger detective to kind of fill his shoes and and carry on the mantle, has just been disgraced and he's probably going to be in prison for the rest of his life. Like, Oh, that's not how you expect a, a cop drama to end. No. What do you think was the intent for that? Do you think the intent was just to mess with the viewers as much as possible? Yeah, probably. I mean, and I think, you know, that kind of goes back to the the grittiness, you know, that was definitely at the peak of that that kind of era. The whole movie is so, I mean, it's a serial killer movie. It's obviously dark, mm-hmm. um, but but definitely, like, I think it was just supposed to be a very psychological horror movie masquerading as a cop drama Mm, yes yeah and I do think that fans of the genre they now they're like surprise me I want to be surprised and there's that Mm -hmm. pressure now for creatives to go you have to set up this this faux plot line to then have the rug ripped under you for the real plot line which is challenging it's really challenging to do it makes it a puzzle for the writers Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it, you can't like shoehorn it in. I feel like, you know, it, it needs to be, it needs to serve a point. 
it needs mm -hmm. to serve the narrative. It can't just be for for a gotcha, I guess. Um, what other, so what other examples do you have for the, the unhappy ending? So the one that I that I found, um, and I I have to give the caveat that I haven't actually read the book. I've watched the movie, but from what I from the research I gleaned that they uh, they align is atonement. Oh, okay. Are you, you have done both? Yes. Yes. So, I'm glad you brought this up. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. So you know, the whole the whole plot is you know starts with this young girl, Bryony, and she wrongfully accuses her sister's lover of committing sexual assaults, and he goes to prison, and then he's fighting in the war, and you get this scene kind of years later where she's now an adult woman and she has recognized the mistake she made and and she's trying to kind of do penance for it and you get this reunion scene with her and her sister and her lover and they kind of refuse to forgive her she's like yeah i get it that's fair even though you won't forgive me i'm gonna try to have you exonerated and you're kind of like okay well this is great like she's she's taking ownership for it she's gonna set things right this is great and then the last little segment of the story is briny as an older woman she's like in her 70s and you find out she's an author and this whole story you've been reading is her retelling this story and that last little segment never happened they never got reunited they in fact both died these horribly tragic miserable deaths and she herself is dying of vascular dementia mm. But it's really interesting because she has this, I think in the book, it's like a diary entry. And in the movie, it's an interview. And they're like, why did you, why did you make this scene up? And she basically is like, well, I didn't want to give the readers a bummer of an ending. And, you know, my sister and her lover never got to be together. And so I'm making up for it by giving their characters the happy ending that they didn't get to have. But then <laughs> as the actual reader or viewer, you're like, oh, but you just gave us a bummer of an ending. Yeah. <laughs> this sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I tell you, I will say that ending is probably why that movie lives on in my head. Yes. And why and, I, and that and the green dress. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the green dress. I love that green dress so much. Uh, iconic, the entire yeah. movie. And everyone was so well cast in it. Mm -hmm. uh, fantastically filmed. But yes, that ending messed me up. And yeah. uh, it's crazy because it's not just a romance story that overcomes uh, some sort of obstacle. It becomes like a real look at guilt yes. and Bryony's um, just her mental ability, capacity for processing what she did. Um, it was just amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think I think that movie is phenomenal on every every layer. Um, 
but it's interesting because it kind of goes into the it kind of gets a little meta with the ending about you know mm-hmm. do do authors owe the readers a, a good ending or or is the authentic ending more more appropriate yeah and it comes into account what you said earlier about happy endings aren't how real life works and mm-hmm. you you hear much more especially during times of war tragedies uh where right. in his case he died from i think it was I, i'm trying to remember hypothermia or he was just exposed to the elements it was injured and just died in yeah while yeah. he was sleeping and then she died hiding in the in the in the sewers or the pipes mm-hmm. and a bombing overhead broke the water main or something and they all drowned yeah yeah and i was like oh yeah I, I didn't realize that's what i was getting into when i watched the movie and right. um that was a movie where i was ugly crying and had to wait a little bit before i could yes. get up and walk out <laughs> well and i think the thing now i again i haven't read the book but in the movie not only does she tell you, yeah, oh, that never happened. They actually then show you the scenes of what happens to them. Mm -hmm. So you don't just hear her tell you about it. You actually watch it happen. Oh Oh, God, this is such a bummer. Yes. And then they create a hypothetical scene where they're at the cabin that they always want to be at by the shore and they're happy. And then you're looking at what could have been, and then you feel robbed of that experience. Yep, exactly. Oh, heartbreaking. Yes, that was on my list as well. <laughs> heartbreaking, but like if the movie ended, if you never got that, oh, here's what really happened. And it just ended with that scene of them like, you know, kissing at sunset by the sea in their cabin. You'd be like, oh, that was a cute movie. But mm-hmm. like, you wouldn't still be thinking about it five no, years later. <laughs> not at all. So are there any stories that you've seen with who tried to do the unhappy ending and they did not do well? It felt like more gratuitous than meaningful. So I had a really hard time with this one, actually. And I think, I think the thing is, is that it's such a gamble and it's, it's kind of so risky that I think storytellers don't, don't go that route unless they're really sure that it's going to serve their narrative. Um, okay. I had a hard time thinking of that too. It was a hard question, (laughs) but in a different, um, a different kind of storytelling medium, I think video game endings can feel that way sometimes. Okay. So when you are reading a book or watching a movie, you can have feelings about the characters that, that are different, that come from your own your own thoughts and and preconceived notions, but a lot of the moral judgment of what's happening comes from the narrator or the author or the director in terms of, you know, how, how the story's told and how things are presented to you. But when you're playing a video game, like you are the main character. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And especially there's a lot of games that have a lot of role-playing aspects where your choices actually have some sort of impact on the narrative of the story. You know, there's things all the way on the, the mass effect side of the spectrum where you're, you're controlling almost every outcome. You know, 
my husband and I have both played the trilogy and we've ha- we have completely different games um, or things where you get more more micro choices that that might have a different tone to the ending but the plot of the game is still the same mm-hmm. and in those kind of games I get frustrated when you have the quote-unquote bad ending because it kind of feels like a little finger waggy like oh you you know you were bad you were bad you you know you shot a civilian we're gonna punish you by giving you the bad ending Mm. um (laughs) yeah it's kind of you feel a little cheated all the hard work you did yeah I I was explaining this to my dad and um one of the games that uh I haven't played but my husband I watched my husband play um is Dishonored and that has kind of like the good ending and then there's two different bad endings and I was explaining it to my dad and the best uh thing that I knew my dad could remotely relate to was the movie Taken I was like Imagine if Liam Neeson went through all the stuff in the movie, all the indiscriminate violence, and then at the end, like he gets his daughter back, but then she winds up dying as like mm. punishment for all the indiscriminate violence. Mm. And you're like, well, then what was the point of yeah. the last two hours? <laughs> what did we do that for? Um, and I think, you know, there's an argument to be made that like, well, sometimes life is just like that. Um, and sometimes there is no point. But I think when you're playing the game, you're like, hey, you gave me agency and choice and control over the narrative. And now you're punishing me for mm. the choices <laughs> that I made. That's why'd you let me make this choice then? Um, <laughs> it beca- like, yeah, it becomes yeah. like a, uh, what's the word I'm thinking about? Uh, uh, an ethical teaching yeah. moment, but who's the teacher? Exactly, exactly. And that's the thing where it's like, you know, if you're watching a a movie or reading a story and it's supposed to be this kind of parable morality lesson kind of thing, like, okay, well, the this is a, a morality lesson from the viewpoint of the author and this is the author's take on it. But when you have a video game thing, it's kind of like, okay, you've got to balance the developer's opinion with the choices that the player is going to make that's a really good point so then inversely are there happy endings or were there happy endings that you saw that should have been unhappy endings that would have made a better story yes (laughs) this is this is uh this is the moment i've been waiting for (laughs) harry potter okay tell me all about it my gosh um so there's there's two i have two different well, I have so many gripes with Harry Potter, but um, in this lens, I have two big ones. So there's, should Harry have died? Is kind of like my first gripe. Like I remember reading the books and when we learned about the whole shtick with Horcruxes, mm-hmm. I remember looking at my mom because we were reading it together and I was like, oh, Harry's gonna have to die in order for this to work. And then you get to the book and it's like, he kind of dies. And we get this weird like soul meet up with Dumbledore. You have a choice to pass on and 
go to the afterlife and be done with all this, or you can go back and keep fighting and finish it out. And he chooses to go back and keep fighting. And that somehow like works to get rid of the Horcrux, which like doesn't really mm-hmm. make sense with the rules we've previously established. Um, and, you know, I, I felt like she kind of pulled her punches a little bit on that. And that's like, we kind of were one foot in, one foot out. He yeah. needed to die, but we didn't really want to kill him. And ooh, what are we going to do with this? And I felt like it was, it was weaker than yeah. if she had gone full tilt in either direction. Um, I see that then, because when you look at the Horcruxes and the other items, you full on destroy the items yes. to get yep. and Harry his Horcrux was plot armor <laughs> yeah like when you're when you're playing video games and you get your shields taken down that was the Horcrux <laughs> yep yep exactly and then even even like if you want to even say like okay we're not going to kill Harry Potter fine you get this epilogue and it, it I I hated the epilogue. Like if if she had just ended the book at without the epilogue, I probably would have been okay with it. Remind me, was the epilogue at the train station? Yeah. It's this 19 years later, and everybody is dropping their kids off to go to Hogwarts. And like Harry and Ginny are married, Ron and Hermione are married, they have kids, they even like catch a glimpse of Draco Malfoy, like from across the crowd. And it's all super cheery, like autumn core, you know, like the sun is shining <laughs> and everybody's all happy. Like the last lines of the book are literally, his scar hasn't pained him in 19 years, all was well. Mm. how how can all be well yeah it's a good especially because it got so deep into the breakdown of society and and not just like because Dumbledore is back but like she unpacked how society is untrusting mm-hmm. uh the confusion there's like a lot of truths in those things so um I'm glad to hear that I guess the demise of Dumbledore mean everything is fine but it does seem kind of interesting that it had such a happy ending. Also, I'm thinking like how perfectly executed to have everyone come together at the same time and everyone decided to have children, you know, to carry on this legacy. Well, and I think the best inverse of that is the ending of um, The Hunger Games, the last book of The Hunger Games, Mockingjay. So same thing, it does a flash forward epilogue and from the outside, it looks really idyllic. It's her and Peta sitting in this beautiful sunlit meadow watching their children play with no threat of danger. Like it looks beautiful and it looks like happily ever after. But then because it's told from a first person point of view, Katniss is talking about like, A, I was terrified to have kids and it took me 15 years to be emotionally ready to have children. B, I know my kids are going to learn about all the things I've done at some point and how do I explain this to them and is this going to change their opinion of me and see I still have nightmares about what I did and what happened to me and 
the ending of Mockingjay, she talks about how when she has bad days, she like plays this game of listing all the good things that have happened to her. And she says, you know, there are much worse games to play. Mm-hmm. And so it, it ends on a happy note. We've achieved victory, but she's recalling her trauma and like it's still with her. And you just think about all the things that happened in Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. And it's like, there's no way that the Golden Trio would not have some degree of, of pretty significant PTSD after all that jazz. Do you um, think Harry could have been a good horror having oh, gone through all that trauma? <laughs> so, well, there's two, there's two things. Like there's, there's a, without getting into a uh, cursed child. <laughs> Let's territory. ignore that one. I read that once and I'm like, never again. We're going to, I read the Wikipedia plot synopsis <laughs> and I was like, oh no, no, no I'm not even going to touch this. Um, yes, I think like, I think Harry being an order or something like that where he, you know, used his skills and um, kind of, I, I think it's, I think Harry would have been more likely to be the kind of hero that was so used to war that he couldn't be at peace. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like a, like gladiator, right? Like Maximus would not have had a happy life if he didn't die at the end of that movie yeah he would have achieved his goals but he wouldn't have had anything left to really live for or to strive for and and I think literally since the time Harry was old enough to have any sort of um self-concept literally his role his purpose for existing was to defeat Voldemort and what do you do after what do you do after you I mean you're you know you're what 18 19 and you've accomplished what you were born to do then what (laughs) hopefully therapy because I feel like you you know you get you get married to your high school sweetheart who is also your best friend's little sister and Mm -hmm. your two best friends get married and you all have a bunch of kids and like everything's super happy and hunky-dory like I'm not really sure that that's how that goes no I would imagine that there would be a huge distrust in authority and you can't trust like the very system that has to continue you you had to break it down Mm -hmm. And I could see how that would have continuing effects. The fact that, you know, there's trauma already associated with growing up with the Dursleys and now becoming a father figure. That's what I feel like that's when all the traumas start to crash in on you. Uh, I almost feel like that's kind of an interesting take. And it's been a while since I've read Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. I don't even remember if they addressed Uh, those things. No, No, I don't even know. And I mean, and I think the the Harry, the epilogue Harry Potter thing, I mean, it even goes into like the naming of their children. Um, and this is like a whole nother big, big can of worms um, that my husband hates every time I kind of pop the lid off of it. But like, you know, he named his kid 
after Albus Dumbledore, who, in my opinion, was like you know, committed emotional child abuse. Um, mm-hmm. I agree. <laughs> through what he did to Harry, like at best negligent, at worst massive abuse of power. Um, and it's like, oh man, like he named his kid after him. Like this is, this really just shows like a complete lack of um, ability to, to really analyze people and their motives and, and all this kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, I have, I have so many problems with Harry Potter as, as an adult, as a kid, I was like, this is, as a kid, I was like mad that Harry didn't die and I didn't like the ending, but I was like, whatever. And then when I was in my like mid twenties, I reread the the series and I was like, oh God, there's so many problems with this. <laughs> like not even, not even going into like the, you know, author problems, but even just contained within the story. You're just like, oh, this is maybe not, <laughs> not great. We've got yeah. some problems here. Absolutely. Yeah. It makes me think of like Ariel, because you have a perspective when you're a kid, Little Mermaid. And I was like, I identify with Ariel. She just wants her independence. And then I watch it as an adult and I'm like, oh man, I am kind of siding with her father right now. She's a little impulsive. And while I, you know, he shouldn't be destroying her things, obviously, and maybe shouldn't have such a chokehold on, on her behavior. But, um, it it's, it's an interesting perspective seeing things from the adult view. Oh man. We, so we have a almost three-year-old and we've been watching the classic Disney movies with her and 100% as a parent watching Disney movies like oh man the Disney formula is like child says I'm gonna do x parent is like no you can't do that for some very well-reasoned purposes you cannot do that and kid is like I'm gonna do it anyway and then by the end of the movie the parent is like oh yeah you know what you were right I've come around to your point of view and I'm now going to support you in your pursuit of this and it's like um not sure that that's the uh that's the expectation I want to set yeah (laughs) so from a, so you're a reader and from a reader's perspective, being able to consume unhappy, bittersweet, happy endings. What are, what are, what's some good advice or tips or ideas for writers to keep in mind as they're deciding whether or not to write an unhappy ending? I mean, I think, I think part of it, um, kind of like what we were talking about, about readers kind of wanting wanting to be surprised or expecting things to be subverted is, I mean, and this kind of just goes for everything, um, like every big decision in, in a story, but making sure it, it actually serves the narrative and it's not just there for shock value, I guess. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, I think when you read, read a story, I feel like you can tell whether or not the the author or the storyteller buys into their ending or not you know like i i think i feel like i remember reading somewhere that 
when J.K. Rowling was initially writing Harry Potter, she had meant for him to die, mm. but then got there and couldn't do it. And I think that shows in the writing because it's like narratively everything led up to that, but then she pulled back. Um, and same thing, I think, you know, if you if you write a, an unhappy ending or, or a bittersweet ending, but it's just there because you didn't want to have a trite tie everything up in a bow ending. If you haven't led, left the breadcrumbs for that ending, I, I think it can maybe just feel, feel kind of slapped on in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I think the bittersweet ending is like the way to go a little bit. I think a happy ending, people are, some people are going to be unhappy with a happy ending, um, me included. (laughs) Um, But then at the same time, there's people who, you know, they're using fiction as a way to, to escape the, the daily problems and they need things to end on a happy note and they're going to be really unhappy and feel robbed and cheated by a quote unquote bad ending. Mm -hmm. But if you do a bittersweet ending, it's kind of like, okay, well you get, you get your victory. You get to feel like there's hope and you succeeded, but there's enough, there's enough sorrow in it that it feels believable and it feels real and, and it's kind of grounded. Mm-hmm. I think that's really good advice. I think a good example of a movie that I think pissed off a lot of people with their ending because it felt like it was planned by committee. So then you had <laughs> what probably could have been a good ending, but then people got involved and then, you know, money got involved was, um, what is it called? Is it the last sky, the Skywalker? Oh, last, right. The Skywalker. Yeah. The last Skywalker. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I get all the names of all the star Wars. Like at some point it would be like the Phantom Skywalker, you know, it's just going <laughs> to devolve from yeah. there. But the part where, you know, the Kylo Ren and Ray, I already have opinions about the empire emperor coming back, but, uh, <laughs> and Ray's association with that, but Kylo Ren and Ray's, uh, ending where, a lot like you could tell that they were fighting two different camps you had people who loved Raylo and people who hated it and thought it wasn't even part of the story and so they appeased it by having this kind of chased kiss killed him off but then people were saying if you pay attention to the footage it looks reversed it looks like there was a lot of doctoring to after the fact change the ending and regardless of whether or not that's true, I, I think people felt that tug of war between the different factions of what the plot should have been. And maybe they were trying to solve, they were trying to please too many people at once. And it just ended to me, it just, I was just like, what did I just watch? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think um, there's there's so many um, things about the the sequel trilogy where you could could say that of of trying to, the pendulum swings so far um, in one direction or the other, whether whether we're trying to do something new or whether we're trying to recall um, the nostalgia. And I mean, I think that's just, you know, when you're when you're working with a franchise, it's it's almost impossible to to strike that balance 
the right way, um, you're going to make, you're going to make someone very unhappy and you're probably going to make a lot of people very unhappy. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I wanted a different ending for, for Rise of Skywalker, but I was okay. I, I was okay with the end of Ray's story. Mm -hmm. I would have liked a different ending for, for Kylo Ren, but yeah. So thank you so much for being on this episode to talk about unhappy endings. Is there any last words or anything you want to promote or push? Ooh, um, <laughs> want to pr promote my husband, um, <laughs> <laughs> check, check him out. Um, but no, um, thank you for having me on here. Um, thank you for, uh, having a, having a non, non-writer, um, ramble about what what writers should do <laughs> I think it's great because then the writers that are listening can go oh this is what the reader is thinking which is really helpful speculative sandbox is a volunteer-run podcast that relies on the collaboration of fellow creators like you join the conversation and participate in fun polls and questionnaires on tiktok instagram and twitter Interested in being in a future episode? Our DMs are open, or you can email speculativesandbox at gmail.com.